Hello and welcome to the Diabetic Podcast. I'm Justin and on here I talk all things diabetes tech, news and management with tech leaders, educators and those living with diabetes. Today I'm so excited about this episode, specifically for parents of children with type 1. I have a lot of followers that have kids with diabetes and you always send me questions and I can't always answer them to the best of my ability because I'm just not a parent, and that's why I spoke to this person. I spoke to fellow diabetes podcaster and author Stacy Sims about what it was like taking care of her son, who is diagnosed at the age of two, up through now. He's about to go to college, so we cover a lot. Stacy Sims is the author of a series of books called The World's Worst Diabetes Mom, so we definitely unpack what that means and how impossible it is to be perfect and how normal it is to be hard on yourself as a parent. Stacy has also had me on her podcast last week. If you want to hear more about my diagnosis, my career, and my love for technology and educating for you, go listen to that. It was a quick 30-minute episode, covers a lot, and you should also follow her podcast because it's just fantastic, and it inspired this show. Keep in mind that anything you hear on today's podcast is not medical advice. Nothing on my YouTube channel or social media should be taken that way. Always consult your physician before making changes to your healthcare. All right, let's get into the conversation. Stacy, thank you so much for coming on the show. This is kind of surreal because A, I listened to your podcast and it definitely inspired this podcast and what I do. And then also, I just have so many mothers who are followers and I just think this is going to be such a great conversation for them to hear. So thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for having me. It's a little surreal for me, too, only because I'm so rarely on the other side of the microphone. I'm usually the one asking the question. So I got to tell you, Justin, I'm a little nervous. Oh, you're going to be just fine because I think you're just going to know these answers. These are going to be like just about your life. Also, I asked for a bunch of questions from people on social media. So some of these questions are from parents who follow me. So um, I'm excited for them to hear the the answers. So let's start from the very beginning. Your son was diagnosed uh, just before the age of two. What was your initial reaction to that? It was a wild time, as you can imagine. So this was back in 2006. And like many parents, we noticed something was wrong, but we didn't really know what was going on. He was still in diapers. He was 21 months about when we started noticing these things. And he had all the usual symptoms that you would think about, super thirsty, peeing all the time. He also went from a really happy, easy, wonderful kid to super cranky, napping at random times, eating a ton of food, just really a different personality. But what was strange was it would happen, and I hear this a lot, especially in little kids, it would happen and then it would be okay. So he would be cranky and horrible for two days and then for three or four days he'd be fine. So finally, um, we noticed over Thanksgiving when he wasn't in daycare and he was home with us all the time and all my family was around that he didn't want to play with the other kids. He just was not himself. So I called my pediatrician and said, I want to bring him in. And I knew just enough. I was a health reporter for TV and for radio. and I knew just enough about diabetes. So I said, I, I want to bring him in. It feels like it's type 1 diabetes. And she said, I've never diagnosed a kid under the age of 2, but bring him in so we can rule it out, which was very lucky because a lot of doctors I have heard 
will say, no, it's just the flu or it's okay. We brought him in. He had lost three pounds. He went from 30 to 27 pounds. He's this tiny little person. And what was puzzling for them was his fasting blood glucose was 80. So that gave us a little bit of a scare because if it wasn't diabetes, what the heck was it? But they did an A1C. He was 11.5, time to go to the hospital. We were very fortunate. We caught it very yeah. early. Um, but it was terrifying. I will never forget trying to put on a brave face for him, but sitting outside that hospital room and just breaking down because who knew what our life was going to be like? I was a health reporter, but I truly knew nothing. I can't fathom, like, having a child with diabetes. I've, I've never had a child. So it's it's... <laughs> Like something I can't fully get a grasp get a grasp on, but what I can say is I just became an uncle, and I'm experiencing ah. my sister learning how to address her child's needs through different cries. What is it like uh. handling a child, their diabetes, when they can't verbalize that they're high, that they're feeling crappy, or that they're low and that they're feeling like ready to pass out? Like, yeah. what is that yeah. like? It was it was I, I describe it as like a lot of sweating and crying and you know and that was me um because for the first two weeks you know we had to hold him down he was unaware right how do you, you can't even explain to a two-year-old hey this happened and it stinks but we yeah. need to do this now to make you feel better he had no idea why the people he loved and you know had spent all their time hugging him and holding him were now stabbing him so that took a good two weeks of horrible horribleness um, but then all of a sudden, two weeks later, he kind of got it. And he he just was very easy in terms of shots after that. We learned he was ambidextrous. So he did not mind getting a shot while he was playing or something, as long as he didn't have to stop what he was doing. So he would literally hold out his arm or hold out his leg. But to answer your question, so the mechanics of it got easier. And this was this was before CGM. This was before most little kids had insulin pumps. So it was a totally different time. We were testing blood glucose with a finger stick at least 10 times a day. We were doing shots probably five or six times a day. So it was very difficult to interpret what was going on with him. Um, you know, and I, I have a very... Uh, I don't know. I use my sense of humor a lot. That's the way we got through it. So I, I hope as you listen, you realize that, you know... <laughs> Humor helps, but you got to have a certain sense of humor. So we would be looking at him going, hmm, is he trying to nap or is he passing out? You know, we better check him. And we didn't know because no CGM and he could not articulate. You know, most kids really can't articulate anything in terms of how they feel until they're at least six or seven years old, even without diabetes. Like my daughter is three years older than my son, does not have type one. And I used to know she was getting an ear infection because she would hit me. She would just get really aggressive and angry, but she couldn't say, Mom, I have an ear infection. Mm -hmm. She just knew something hurt, and she'd have to, you know, articulate it in her own way. And we learned that with Benny, too. You know, he would never say, I feel low when he was four years old. He'd be like, I'm wobbly. Or you would get really aggressive when he was high. So we just did tons of finger sticks, wow. tons of around-the-clock care, and tried to live our lives <laughs> the best we could. That's crazy. Like, the technology was just not there at this yeah, time. yeah. What would you say to parents today that their children are being diagnosed today? Like in, in regards to technology, what would you say yeah. to them? You know, it's evolved over time. I would have said, um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, five or six years ago, I would have said, um, that's about when they started sending kids home from the hospital with CGM, uh, especially with Dexcom. And I would have said, um, you know, be careful. You need to learn the mechanics of it. You need to learn 
really the nitty-gritty of everything and maybe try that for a while. I still think you need to know how to do a finger stick. You need to always have a meter in the house, right? You need to know how to give shots because the technology is not good enough that it, it's never, you know, it, it, that it, it works perfectly, right? We, we know that we need to know how to use backup plans. But I think it's great that now the you know, the accepted way to treat type 1 diabetes when you have access and, and you can, you know, unfortunately when you can afford it, is to start on a continuous glucose monitor. And I think that's fabulous. And I would just say to parents, look, the technology is wonderful. It may keep your child in range more. It may help you manage in a way that can give you more peace of mind, but you also have to let it. There are many parents of children with type 1 who use CGM from day one and are more anxious than I ever was. And I think part of that is education. I think part of oh. it is social media. I think part of that is, is personality. Uh, you know, we all parent in different ways. There's no reason to think we would parent with diabetes the same way. So I would say use every bit of technology you can, but understand you are still raising a child. You are not raising a number. And you have to look at this in the whole, I'm going to sound a little woo-woo, but in the holistic way that we raise kids anyway. It's hard. It's hard to do, especially when you got numbers staring at you in the face 24-7. I can relate to that on a personal level because having my Dexcom numbers on my watch can sometimes get in the way of just me being in the moment and forgetting that I have diabetes, which is so important. And like you said, there are, there are cues you can get from your children that aren't from the Dexcom that you can use. While the Dexcom is great, it's it's best in some ways to address the problem when you get that alert and not be over analyzing the numbers so that you and your child can live a more happy, fulfilling life. Uh, so I'm glad you said that. Now, yeah. when how old was your son when he got on a CGM and or a pump? What, what was that? Sure. When did he that was, happen? It it was actually six months later, used to be for an insulin pump, used to be very common. I think many insurers will still say you have to wait six months. We need six months in numbers. Um, and he, he got, we started on the Animus 2020, which is a pump that is no longer around, but um, he was two and a half. And it was wonderful because what really changed for us was the precision. Back in 2006, 2007, um, we were very fortunate because, a little bit of history here, they had just approved Lantus, the long-acting insulin for children, down to age two. So he was lucky enough that we could start on multiple daily injections on MDI. And I know as you're listening, you're like, lucky? What the heck? But before MDI, you had to be on NPH and regular. And you, you may have heard about the exchange system and things like that. So basically, the older insulins meant you had to eat at the same time every day, the same amount every day. Everybody with diabetes was having a snack at 11 wow. o'clock. Everybody with diabetes was having lunch <laughs> at 1 or whatever the schedule was. But you had to do it. I can't, I can't imagine doing that with a 2-year-old. And people did it. So we were really lucky that we were able to just give him one shot of long-acting and then give him fast-acting when he ate. And that worked out very well for us in terms of, you know, just being able to let him eat. What didn't work out well was he needed the teeniest, tiniest bits of insulin, right? So we needed 0 0.025 or whatever, I think, is the lowest dose you could give with an insulin pump. You can't come close to that with a syringe. You know, we were trying to drop quarter-inch units on a syringe that's marked for one unit. 
And at the time, they didn't even have half-unit pens. So honestly, it was a real crapshoot. Um, I know people use diluted insulin now, which is, if you know, if it's not something I know anything about. But if you're listening, this is the first time you're hearing about it, you have a very small child, you'd like to get on diluted insulin, definitely ask your endo about it. I don't have any experience with it, but I know it works well for some. But we were just eyeballing these teeny tiny doses. So I knew I wanted an insulin pump to, for the precision and the flexibility. And once he got on that, boy, I got to tell you, he got much healthier. He ate better. He filled mm. out. We thought we were doing really, really well. But I think because we, the dosage was so inexact, we were probably giving him more insulin than he needed. So he was high, you know, excuse me, so he was having more highs and more lows, right? A lot of rebounding. Um, and the pump really helped. He got a CGM when he was nine. I know people think it's bananas that we went seven years without a CGM. Um, but we did. And we didn't know what we didn't know. Um, he did very well with a CGM. It was the Dexcom G4 Platinum. And then we had the G4 Pediatric Platinum, which was the exact same thing, but had an extra warning screen on the receiver. He did not get share because it did not exist uh, for two more years. So share and follow wow. kicked in. I know it's like a history lesson here. And by the time Benny got share and follow, he was in middle school. He was, it was really the end of fifth grade, beginning of sixth grade. And so we used it. We can, we can talk about this, but we used it in, in very different ways than most people do because we didn't have it until he was at a point where he was ready to be more independent. Um, and then he, we used the tandem T-Slim now, and he got control IQ in January of 2020. And I have to say these automated systems all of them um, are just a, an unbelievable leap that we had heard about when he was diagnosed, believe it or not, in 2006. They were like, this thing, this artificial pancreas thing will be here soon. And, um, you know, it was worth the wait, man. I love it. How did you balance managing diabetes while also letting your son be a kid? Isn't that the question? Um, I think the advice that was given to me early on and the, the philosophy we developed over time really helped. Um, I've already said, and I did not make up that, that saying, you know, you were raising a child, not a number. The first person I heard say that was my friend Maura McCarthy, who is an author. Uh, her daughter, I think now is in her 30s, maybe, or early 30s. And she's just, you know, very independent, wonderful girl, young woman. And um, Maura wrote several books, uh, including Raising Teens with Diabetes, which I think is a wonderful, very valuable book about exactly what you're asking. Um, I also think as parents, uh, my husband and I, we kind of decided this is going to change our lives. It cannot help but do that. But our endocrinologist told us and our diabetes educator told us he really can do whatever he wants. It's going to be okay. And that was also a time when that advice had just changed because just a few years prior, People were, and, and even still now, I mean, it's amazing when you talk about people, the different diagnosis stories people have. But truly, in the late 90s, people were still being told, no, 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 no. You can't do this. You can't do that. You shouldn't go back to college. You can't live independently. You can't have children. You can't play sports. It is unbelievable how the, wow. the, the culture of no was still there. In just the few years, and I think it was the newer insulins. I think it was better education. I think it was a lot of people that I'm sure you will have on your podcast that I've had on mine that pushed the envelope, right? You know, uh, Olympic uh, competitors, Miss America, people who really pushed it in the late 90s um, and, and made these educated people change their minds and say, yes, you can, paved the way for people like my son to get that diagnosis of, no, you can do whatever you want. And I'll never forget our endo, who I met that, in, that day in the hospital. He got on the floor with my two-year-old and started playing with him. He said to me, if Benny is meant to live to be 99 years old, if that's his fate, he can do it with type 1. 
And I was like, all right, let's go. Let's do it. And that was the encouragement. I believed him. I mean, I don't know. You know, I wasn't going to research and try to prove him wrong. So the answer is we tried very hard to incorporate diabetes, to be honest about diabetes, to respect diabetes, to understand it could stop you, it could slow you down, but we were going to do our best to not let it keep Benny from living a really fun and as ordinary life as possible. Now, that also meant not having perfect blood sugars. I am a person whose whole philosophy is not perfect, but safe and happy. And I'm sure we'll talk more about that. But for me, there is no point in living your childhood at 95 if it means your childhood is limited. Now, that means different things to different people, right? That's fine. Again, we, parent very, we all parent differently. But especially with CGM, I feel that more – I hear from parents who are so fearful of letting their kid go above 120, you know, 140. Somebody's told them, set your limit at 120. And you, if you go above that, you failed as a parent. It, that, you know, that's not possible. Go play soccer. Go have a sleepover. Go eat an ice cream sundae at the end of the school year. You know, we did things that really, you know, made his blood sugar go bananas. But we, we did them because the long picture here is he is going to have diabetes his whole life probably. I'm very hopeful. But come on. He's going to live with diabetes for a long time. He's got to learn to respect it to live with it, and to not resent it. Boy, I got on my soapbox there. <laughs> Probably not <laughs> I mean, the last that, that time. Was, <laughs> that was great, though. I mean, look, it's impossible to be perfect. All of these, all of the tech we're using are imperfect solutions, and the best we can do is utilize it to the best of our ability and let it take on some of the work, especially since it can right now. Speaking of taking on the work, when did your son begin taking more ownership over controlling their diabetes? This is the number one question I get is because as we'll find out, Benny is super, super independent. Um, He's done a lot without us. And boy, I still worry. Can I just put that out in the open first? Like you never stop worrying. I don't want anyone to think that we do all these things and I'm at home going, ha ha, life is great. He's fine. (laughs) I worry all the time, but I let him do it. Um, So we started honestly, super early. We, uh, I live in Charlotte, North Carolina. We have always had a school nurse shortage here. Different states have different situations, but I knew going into kindergarten that we would not have a full-time school nurse. So he'd been in daycare since he was uh, nine months old because my husband and I both worked full-time. And daycare, thank God, took him back. This is another long story, but they took him back. We were super lucky. Uh, They had a manager there who was willing to learn and did shots and blood sugar checks. And by the time he left, everybody at daycare pretty much knew how to do it. It was really a wonderful community. So we decided that Benny would learn how to do his own care with supervision, right? A five-year-old is not going to do his stuff on his own. But he would be able to mechanically go through the motions before kindergarten. So we worked with preschool and we were like, hey, you know, you're going to kindergarten. Big boys in kindergarten know how to check their blood glucose and use their pump. And he was like, yes, they do. So we taught him how to do all of that. So in kindergarten, he had a, you know, his te- we had no full-time nurse. So he did all of his care in the classroom. His teacher was wonderful. And they had an aide 
that kind of came in to supervise the the checks and we had the checks scheduled at certain times of day because again no Dexcom and then um, I would send in the carb counts for lunch and the way that independence worked for him is every year I would have a conversation with him before school started and I I still do this although he totally rolls his eyes and thinks I'm ridiculous and I would say what do you want to do this year what's your goal for diabetes and in first grade it was he wanted to buy lunch at least once a week in the school cafeteria so we figured out a way to make that happen, right? We're estimating carbs. You know, he's not taking his tray down to the nurse's office, so we had to figure out how to do that. And then second grade, I don't even remember. By fifth grade, it was like, I don't want to check in with anybody. I want to manage by myself. Um, but I wasn't ready to let him do that because, you know, I don't know if you know a lot of fifth grade boys, you know, they're not the... Hmm. His bedroom is right over there. I don't want him to overhear me, but, you know, <laughs> let's just say trust but verify. So we set up a system where his fifth grade teacher would give him a thumbs up, like, question mark, did you bowl this for lunch? And he would give a thumbs up back. And that was it for fifth grade. So gradually, right, um, in first grade in my neighborhood is the age where a lot of kids go to other kids' homes after school to play by themselves without their mom and dad tagging along. So I had to figure out a way to make that work. He would call me. He got to his friend's house if they were going to have a snack, and he'd be like, we're eating you know, ringdings or pizza. I, I learned what everybody in my neighborhood had for after-school snacks. I thought it was all pretzels, hummus, carrot sticks. Mm-mm. People are eating pizza after school. Peter, you know, they're eating donuts and cream pies and whatever which was, you know, kind of a nightmare. But he would call me up and say, here's what we're having for snack. How much should I bolus? And beep, 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 he would use his pump, and we would carry on. It sounds bananas in some ways when I look back, but those little hour play dates, two-hour play dates, those little bits really, really helped. He went to diabetes camp when he was seven. That was huge. It was a week of sleepaway camp. He loved it, and they taught him a whole bunch of stuff. He went there every year till he was 15. Um, so he did lots of overnights away from us, starting with diabetes camp. And then we would start to do sleepovers at friends' homes. Seven was the age that I let my daughter start doing that. So seven was the age I let Benny do that. Um, I'm just kind of trying to shorthand it a little bit here. But the whole point yeah. is little by little by little. And then he went away to a non-diabetes camp for two weeks when he was a little older. And then he stayed. At, he loved that camp. And he went for a month. Wow. He was a CIT at that camp last summer for eight weeks. He's a lifeguard at that camp. This summer, he just got home. He was gone for nine weeks. So the answer is gradual independence. He learned, he made mistakes all the time. He would misdose at sleepovers. He would forget stuff. He, I mean, I could tell you, I wrote a whole book about all my mistakes. But he really would make a ton of mistakes. And that's how he learned that he would be okay. And it's how I learned he would be okay. So the answer to independence is you got to start and you got to let it keep going. Yeah, a few things. On the topic of your book, we're going to be talking about that later. I'm very <laughs> excited to, to ask you about that. Uh, when it comes to camp, I love the idea of a, like a diabetes camp. Personally, I want to like give back. I would love to be a counselor. So if anyone's yeah. listening and knows of a camp on the East Coast, I should be a camp counselor at. Oh, I got names Let for me you. know. Okay, let me know. I, I would love to do that. Now, a question kind of popped up in my head yep. while you were talking. How did he or you help instill like a support system with his friends? You mentioned like he would go low at a sleepover. Like, was there a way that he that you encouraged him to speak to his friends, like to be like, hey, you know, if I go kind of dizzy, like, can you help me out? This is what you could do. Like, did he feel comfortable doing that? Yeah. Well, we're it's it's hard to know, right? Is it nature or nurture? 
But yes, he is extremely comfortable. And I'll give you a couple of quick examples that, I mean, these are like some proud mom moments. But we started in that daycare when he went back. I mean, he was two, right? And I would read books to his little friends and I would share what diabetes was all about. I always did the same presentation until like third grade. It was like, who here eats food? You know, oh, I do. And it's like, you know, you know, food is fuel for your body, right? But Benny's body has trouble turning that food into fuel, and here's what he needs to do. And you can be a really good helper if blah, blah, blah. And I, I used to say all the time, the kids were the best helpers, right? The parents sometimes were a little difficult. The teachers occasionally were a little tough. The kids were always amazing. We were very fortunate. He never had a situation that I know of where he was bullied or made fun of. He's just not that kind of kid. Um, and we were, and I don't mean that people bring it on themselves. I mean that my child is a big kid. <laughs> you know, he, no one's really <laughs> going to bully him. He's, uh, he's always one of the biggest kids. Although we did have a weird incident, not diabetes, where like a little kindergartner was trying to instigate a fight with him when he was in like fourth grade. He had no idea what to do. He had to go to the school guidance counselor and be like, what am I supposed to do? It was really <laughs> one of these weird things where this little kid was like, I'm going to find the biggest guy and beat him up, whatever. But diabetes, he was very fortunate that way. And I remember in about seventh grade, uh, he had gone to a new school and I was like, you know, we asked him about friends and he said, well, this guy is struggling a little bit with the diabetes. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, yeah, I don't have time for that. If he can't figure that out, we're not going to be friends. And I was like, oh, okay, that's great. So he's very secure. Um, but gosh, there was just something you said about, oh, and then I really learned that he would talk to his friends because in ninth grade, he joined the wrestling team. And I had never experienced this. I was on sports teams growing up in school, not travel teams, but they did overnights. Like we would fundraise and they would go travel somewhere and stay in a hotel room. Um, and so he was with different kids every night. And I, of course, went and talked to the coach at the beginning of the season. But it's ninth grade. I'm not going with them. So every time he was in a new hotel room, you know, with a new bunch of kids, two or three kids, he would go through this thing and he'd be like, okay, here's my Jivo Kaipo pen or here's my Baximi. If I start slurring my words or not making sense, I'm not drunk. I don't drink. I'm not doing that. You just have to call the coach. Um, if I'm unconscious, you know, and he would show them and they would always be like, we're not doing that. And he'd be like, that's fine. Go get the coach. Right. And he would just tell them. And I never knew this it, for months after. So that was amazing to me. And he's been in situations. He says, Mom, I've done this every year at regular camp. You know, he does this when he goes away. So it made me feel really good that he really just advocates for himself now. I don't know how you that. do that other than I can't teach. My, yeah. I don't know how to tell parents how to do that other than continuing to tell your kid to advocate for themselves and making it a natural part of diabetes education. That's so important. I, I do the same when I'm on vacations, when I'm around new people, I let them know. I just throw it casually into conversation or if I'm on like a vacation, I'll be like, this is my pen or my glucagon. It's in this bag. If you, if you ever, if I'm ever incoherent, please, <laughs> please go get it. Yeah. Before we leave this segment, yeah. what advice would you give to parents or specifically give to yourself? at that time of diagnosis of your son that you've learned today? I would say that, and I'm a little superstitious, so I'm a little hesitant to say this, but knock on wood somewhere, I would say, look, none of your fears are gonna come true. What you think you know about diabetes is not what diabetes is. I distinctly remember thinking he's never going to eat sugar again and this kid is never going to leave my house right he's going to live with me forever 
which is not my parenting philosophy. Some people would like that. My parenting philosophy was I'm raising you to leave. I love you. Come visit. But I want you to be an independent person. And I would say to myself, it's not going to be easy. But you can do this. He can do this. And it's going to be okay. And it was just, it was terrifying. It was terrifying. And we went home, Justin. We went home and I was all prepared. Like I'm trained. I've been three days of training. I know what I'm doing. And I walked into his bedroom to do that first blood sugar check at like 1030. And I never thought about him being in a crib. He was in a crib. And we had never thought, do I raise the slats? Like, do I, what do I do to check, to get in there and check him? And I, I wish I could go back to that night where I was just, I really was paralyzed. I was standing there thinking, I don't want to do this. He, I don't need to do this. He's going to be okay. And of course, then I smacked myself and said, you have to do it. He can't do it himself. You have to check his blood sugar. You have to give him a shot. And I wish I could have just hugged myself and said, you did it. You did it. And you're going to keep doing it. And he's going to be okay. And you're going to get to a point where he's going to think this is one of the funniest stories that you tell that he would actually fit in a crib. And you're going to be okay. It's hard. That's lovely. <laughs> I kind of want to keep going in this type of direction. We're going to come back to your son, but I want to talk more about you and just parenting in general, because I know I get so many comments or questions from parents who, who need support themselves. Yes. You call yourself the world's worst diabetes mom. That's the <laughs> title of your, your book. It's the title of your second book. You're still the, still the worst diabetes mom. Why do you call yourself that? Well, our diabetes philosophy was different than a lot of people, especially, especially when social media came in and CGMs came in and there was this pursuit of perfection that hadn't been part of the conversation before. Um, and I, I call myself the world's worst diabetes mom. And the funny reaction is whenever I meet another parent, if I'm at a book signing or we're doing something with the book, everybody comes up and says, no, no, it's me. It's me. It's not you. It's me. Because there, <laughs> right, there's this thinking that we're all getting it wrong because perfection is not possible. And there are few other conditions and few other parenting experiences where you get to see your failure in numbers in front of your face every five minutes or every one minute, depending on which CGM you're using. And I know some of you listening perhaps are thinking, no, I'm, I've got this, right? We're in range 95% of the time. So, but I guarantee you that even those parents, <laughs> he's gesturing to your blood sugar, which is behind you. But I think there's a lot of parents who, even if their kids in range that much, still feel like they're doing it wrong because maybe they're giving up other things. And so I wanted to, as I've said, I use humor a lot. I wanted to, to just pop that balloon and say, yes, I'm the worst, the terrible. I do everything wrong. We've made all these mistakes. Um, you know, I'm, I, we don't have the time and range that, you know, that all the influencers say we should have. And guess what? My son's doing great. He's happy, healthy, independent kid who went to Israel all by himself. Well, he went with a camp group, but not with a diabetes group and not with us for a month. He goes, the summer camp that I mentioned, the regular camp, we have never followed him on the Dexcom. Um, I, I don't think, I mean, he, there's no Wi-Fi there. Uh, he might share with a friend or two at camp. Um, I know he shares with friends, which I think is great, but, you know, not with me. I didn't see any numbers for the last nine weeks. Actually, I don't see any numbers now because we've agreed he's going to college. I'm not following. I feel, I don't know if I like that, but it's the way it is. And I feel like by saying I'm the worst, it gives permission to have a different kind of conversation. So that's that. 
the worst. Did you get diabetes burnout? And if so, how did you deal with that? And like, just with yourself, I'm sure you didn't want to like put it on your son, right? Like, what out what outlets yeah. did you find or yeah yeah it's a great question and I, I think just to preface it by saying the experience of being a diabetes parent is a singular and different experience than being a person with diabetes right my son's experience with diabetes is not mine and I think it's okay to say that right when he was two and three years old we would say our and we and you know it's it's our diabetes and it certainly was at that point but it doesn't stay that way I've never um you know, I've never had to inject insulin. Uh, I've never, I've never worn the equipment. I mean, I don't have that experience, um, and I can take breaks. I am incredibly fortunate to have a support system. Um, I don't think I've ever had diabetes burnout, and it's because I am proactively selfish. <laughs> <laughs> That's another reason why I'm the world's worst diabetes mom. And I wish more moms could be more selfish. Um, I don't know if I'm just lucky that I have that gene. Um, my mother gave me advice very early on, even before diabetes came into our lives, to be more selfish. Um, I lean on my husband a lot. I did. He's one of these guys who was like, all right, I'm doing half the care. I mean, he's always been half the, we've split the child care. I worked very early mornings for many, many years. I was a radio show host, so I left the house at 3 a.m., so he was morning guy anyway. He uh, owned and operated a restaurant, so he was never home at night, so I was the night person. So we've always done childcare 50-50, same with diabetes. Um, so I had him to lean on. I trained anybody and anybody. I would just say to my neighbor, hey, I need to do this. I mean, I had a million charity events and things I needed to do for my radio station. So I was like, can you watch the kids for three hours while I go downtown? Um, you know, here's this meter, you can do this. And they'd be like, sure. Um, I, I just was very lucky. I had a few people tell me, no, they weren't comfortable, but that was few and far between. I paid a fortune for a, a, a good babysitter because we'd had the teen babysitters from down the block. But when he was diagnosed, you can't do that. A two-year-old needs a different kind of care. You know, it was one thing when he was six to give him to my neighbor for two hours. I'm kind of jumping all over the place in the timeline. But at two years old... You know, I needed somebody who really knew what they were doing. So I found nursing students. I asked, um, you know, I asked up and down the network that I had in Charlotte where I lived, who do you know, who can help me? Um, and we actually found sitters with type one who are now family friends, you know, which is amazing. One of our great babysitters just told me that she's pregnant. I'm so excited. She wow. got married last year. So, you know, wow. she lives with type one. She's having her first baby. Um, but it's really, it's tough. It's really tough. So I took breaks. Um, I will tell you one of the stories <laughs> that makes me look really bad, um, but it did inform our diabetes philosophy, and that was Benny was diagnosed in uh, late, uh, early December, let's say. We went through this whole nonsense right after Thanksgiving. So early December is when we got the actual diagnosis. I had a long-planned trip with my college roommate to Las Vegas in late January. Me and my husband, her and her husband, we were going. I called my mom, who was going to come watch the kids, and I said, look, we got to cancel. This isn't happening. And she was like, no, it's absolutely happening. Life goes on. And if you stop doing things now, you'll never start doing them again. So thanks to my mom, we went. I still can't believe we did it, but it was not even eight weeks later. The kicker to that story is my mom and dad, who came and stayed with the kids, said, oh, yeah, by the way, we can't possibly do shots. We're not doing shots. And I was like, you have to do shots. That's how is he going to stay alive for the weekend? <laughs> But it was just really funny. And we did it. And we've always been able, 
I think part of the reason was, you know, in 2006, 2007, we didn't have social media. So I wasn't like making a post saying, left my kid, and people were judging me, like, who do you think you are? But once you start doing that and taking breaks for yourself, I know not everybody can do that. It's expensive. It's difficult. You may have family members who aren't willing to watch the kid. But finding, here's my advice, find a community. Um, We have a large one here in Charlotte, North Carolina. I created a Facebook group. We have almost 1,000 parents. We help each other. And maybe you can trade care with another parent for an afternoon. But you asked about burnout, which is why I went this whole big long answer. You've got to be a little selfish. It's very tough. It's tough raising kids. You need a break from that anyway, let alone a kid with diabetes. Yeah, and I'm going to put links to your resources in today's show notes. That that group sounds like a great place for parents to go and just be able to relate to people, which is the power that I found. Yeah, and if you're not in Charlotte, there's probably a local group where you live, and there are a couple of really good, um, I think Learning to Thrive is a good series of groups. These are not as well known as some of the really big ones, but Learning to Thrive 1.0 is for people in their first year. Learning to Thrive 2.0 is for people after their first year. And it's the kind of group where only people who've had kids diagnosed for I think eight or 10 years can even give advice. It's very cool and very different. When it comes to the teenage years, uh, I, I believe you said that Dexcom share would have come out at that point. How did you balance being like, overbearing and too on top of your son's health while also allowing him to have that independence like when it comes to like highs did you talk did you talk to him about like hey you were like high for four hours today like can you tell me about what happened like (laughs) how involved were you this is so hard oh and i don't know anybody thinks they did this right so what what i did and this is this was this worked for us um we decided once we got Dexcom share that I, I needed a plan. There was absolutely no way that I could just look at those numbers all day long without a plan. So Benny and I sat down and talked about it and we hashed it out. And I said, okay, at, if you're at low, right, I need, basically we would say, you get this much time to handle it for yourself, right? Um, at, if you're high, if you're over 200, you get this much time before I text you. If you're over 300, you get this much time. If you're under 90, I don't even remember. If you're under 80, if you're under 55. Um, and that was, that, those parameters changed. So in middle school, it was, you know, if you're under um, 80 for more than 15 minutes, and, I, and you know, you haven't, the, the number hasn't moved, I'm going to text you. And all I need back is I'm on it, I've treated. If you are over 250 for more than two hours, I'm going to text you and I need to know that you're on it and that kind of thing. And, and as sixth grade was different from seventh grade, was different from eighth grade. You know, as he got older, those parameters changed because, you know, there's nothing worse, I imagine, as a person with type one, than you're 250. You know what you've done, right? Something happened, you missed bolus or you forgot to bolus or you had a bad infusion set. You've already taken care of it, but insulin is slow. And so two hours later, you're at maybe 220, maybe you're at 320, but you've already taken care of it and there's nothing else you can do. So I imagine you don't need your mom texting you every 20 minutes going, did you do it? Did you, you have the funniest videos with the mom, which I adore because (laughs) you're poking fun and you're, you know, you're, you're, you're really bringing out a truth that we are so worried about our kids that we go to any length to help them. But the help may not be helpful. So my advice is 
to continue to have those conversations and tell your, you know, depending on the age of your child, you know, this is, uh, this is non-negotiable, but how we do it is. And that really helped us. So by the time Benny was a junior in high school, I did not text for highs. I did not text for lows. The only reason I would text would be if he was under 55, if that urgent low went off, and 15 minutes later, it was still going off, and I didn't hear from him. But it didn't, we didn't start there. We started at a very different level and went. And I had many, middle school, Justin, was the pits. It was just horrible. Yeah. He did not want to hear from me. He did not want to do diabetes in the way I wanted him to. He never stopped. He never had a big rebellion. He never tried to hide it. But it was a pain in the butt, and he wasn't interested. And plus, they have that brain fog in middle school. Like, he forgot everything everything. It was really hard. And that's a time where they're pushing for independence the most. I want to go to the, you know, I would say the mall, but that's not where they go. I want to go to the shopping center and walk around with my friends on a Friday for five hours. Well, we're going to eat. We're going to sit around. We're going to go to the movies. We're going to eat again, right? Girls are around. So the hormone levels are going up and down like a crazy thing, you know? So it's just one of those situations where he was much higher than I would have liked. It was tough. It was tough. But I think you've got to be very empathetic. You've got to understand that their lives are not in imminent danger. Even we can talk about this. The studies show that, you know, they're not it, it's really not going to hurt them long term to be high for four hours on a Friday. Um, but it stunk. It really stunk. But having that empathy and having the conversations with him, I think, really helped us get through to the other side with him still talking to me, <laughs> which was the goal. Yeah. Yeah, communication is so key, and I, I love that advice to just, like, have those conversations, have a little sit-down, a little check-in to come up with expectations. Yeah. That way you can understand what's what's acceptable for them. Work together to come up with a plan so that you're not overbearing or it's expected the way you're responding to things and kind of communicating the importance of this while also letting them know that I want you to be independent. You should be independent. That's, that's fantastic. So you told me you had a conversation specifically about kind of you letting go as he's going to college and we're we're not going to share anymore. Um, how exactly are, do you feel ready for that? What a great question. I don't feel ready. But he's ready, if that makes sense. Um, As a parent, I don't know that you're ever ready. I have a daughter who just graduated college and is working full time and has her first apartment after college. She's done. She's out. I am not ready for that. (laughs) But she is. And I have to accept that. Um, I'm not ready. It's gone too fast, and I'm not ready. And I don't, and I'll tell this to, I'm going to interview Benny for the podcast. And I am going to tell him, like, we have very open conversations. I'm not sure that he's, like, good enough diabetes-wise, right? I know he is. I know he is. He's fine. But I want him to be a certain way, right? And he's just not. But at the same time, as he had said to me, and I believe he said it on a podcast episode last year, he's like, Mom, you are a 50-year-old lady. You do things differently than I do as a 17-year-old boy. And that's really true. And we have to take that and say, is he doing what he needs to do as a now 18-year-old? The answer is yes. Is he safe? Is he happy? Yep, that was my goal for him all along. And I got to tell you, these AID systems, 
they they keep them. I mean, he's responsible enough to change his infusion sites, to, you know, change his insulin out, to charge his pump, and they will keep you safe. It's amazing. So the the teenager I thought I might have back in 2006, you know, the going away to college stuff, is actually so much better than I thought it would be. It's just not as good as I want it to be, <laughs> knowing, you know, what it could be. And And by, as you listen, what I mean by this is, you know, Benny rarely pre-boluses. He rarely, you know, he's not going to wait 15 minutes. He's gonna we say, oh, we yeah, talked about this in our we pre-call, did. and I was like, I what? <laughs> Justin was horrified. You know, he misses boluses for meals. He'll eat, and then I'll be like, oh, yeah, beep, beep, beep. You know, I mean, I love, God bless Beta Bionics with their, you know, you're estimating your size of your meal. My kid's been doing that for years. You know, oh, yeah, this is kind of, I don't know, 25 carbs, 75 carbs, 150 carbs, right? Medium, small, whatever. You know, he's just... And the systems are good enough that it works for him. You know, there have been times where his, and I don't share particular numbers, which also makes me a little bit of an outlier. I don't think it's healthy to put another person's information on the internet. That is, my son is another person. He's not me. And I don't want a trail of breadcrumbs with his A1C numbers all over the internet. That's not fair to him. Um, so I've stopped, I stopped posting that when he was about six years old. Um, but, you know, he's been incredible. And to me, incredible. Like we've had some numbers like, wow, especially when we first started using control IQ. I was like, this is amazing. Like you barely have diabetes, you know, and we've had some numbers where I felt like we are just failing. We're failing as a family, you know, Um, but right now he's fine. He's just fine. And I have to accept that. Um, but no, I'm, I'm, no, I'm not ready. But he's ready. Um, you know, we had a conversation at breakfast this morning. Like, are you bringing a refrigerator or is your roommate bringing a refrigerator? Are you packing? Do you need sneakers? Like, what do you need? Do you have, do you have Excel sheets that are, I don't know. You know, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, I, I love your point to like how normal this reaction you're having to him going to college is it's it's like it's normal for a parent to be worried or nervous or not ready for their child to go to college and the same thing with diabetes it's it's all related it's they, he's lived with this this has been his life for so long it's just an aspect of him that he's taking there everyone has their thing that a parent's going to be like well how are they going to cope with this thing when they go to college so someone going to college with diabetes really is no different in many ways. Parents still need to let go in some way. And I think it's from what you've been saying, you've instilled so many great mechanisms in him with communication and him speaking with his friends that are really going to, to keep him safe and secure. And also it sounds like you just have a good relationship where he can reach out to you if there is an issue or he wants your support in that. So I really like that. I want to get into your careers. You've done a lot and I, and you've also done a lot to help out the, the parent, the parents of type one diabetes. Before we get to that specifically, I want to know what inspired you to start your podcast and, and when did you start your podcast? Yeah. Oh gosh. Okay. I started the podcast in June of 2015. So it's been a long time. Um, but I was a, I have been broadcasting 
makes it sound so high and mighty, but I've been in broadcasting since I was about 19 years old. Um, it's all I ever wanted to do. Uh, I went to college to do uh, television reporting, that kind of thing. I started in radio when I was still in college. I was the weekend reporter at an all-news station, and that's that's what I did. I was a TV news reporter and anchor in upstate New York. I went to I was working in Utica, New York, then Syracuse, and then I came to Charlotte. Um, we came. My, I met my husband in Utica at that TV station. We moved here because I was tired of mornings and I was tired of winter. So I came to Charlotte. And then three years later, I got offered this great job to do mornings again in Charlotte. So no snow, but I still had to get up at three o'clock in the morning. Um, did that for 10 years. And then my daughter was going into middle school. And I could not do I just couldn't do it anymore because there's all these nighttime activities. I was missing everything. You know, you can't go to bed at 7.30 when you have a middle schooler. It was very, very difficult. So I started sleeping less and less. And I actually got sick. Uh, it was very, very tough stuff. Um, and I, I left. I just couldn't. We just made a total lifestyle change. My husband sold the restaurant. He got a full-time job uh, doing something else. And I was sitting around the house going, all right, I'm healthy, but I'm really bored. I'm bored. So I listened to a lot of podcasts. I've always listened to podcasts since the mid-2000s. I've listened to podcasts since you had to plug them into your computer and download them to your iPod. You know, that's why they're called podcasts, because you had to use an iPod. Um, and I loved listening to diabetes podcasts. And there have always been a ton of diabetes podcasts, but I hated a couple of things. And please forgive me, those of you who used to use blog talk radio, I, um, the quality was terrible. And as an audio person, it drove me bananas. Look, I'm wearing my big headphones for interviews like this. I've got my microphone. You know, I like things just so. But I also wanted a news-focused podcast. I liked hearing the first-person stories, which is what most of them were. But I, they would have guests on, and I'd be walking my dog and yelling. I'd be like, ask them this, follow up on that, you know, or something. So I said, all right, I'm going to start my own show. But I didn't know how to do it. I'd always worked with an audio engineer. Um, so Christopher Snyder, who now works at Tidepool, he had a great podcast called Just Talking, and I was on his show. And afterward, I called him, and I'm like, how do you do it? And at the time, it was a little bit more complicated than it is now, but he walked me through the technical aspects, and I started. And the idea of Diabetes Connections was that we would do um, news interviews, but we would try to find the connection. Um, you know, how did you meet people in the community? That lasted for like three shows. And then I did Just News. Um, I do talk about Benny, but not the show's not about parenting a child with type 1. He comes on occasionally, but it's more about, you know, doing interviews and, and, and learning more about these the technology and the systems. And I just love it. I can't believe it, how long we've been doing it. Yeah. Yeah, I try to do the same. I love technology. Before this, I was a tech reviewer, so, like, that's what really fascinates me. And I try to involve technology as much as I can in interviews like this because it also is important to share – um, how people are interacting with it, right? So people okay. can learn how to interact with it better as well. Now, Mom's Night Out. I want to hear all about this. I know you've been creating an outlet and resource for, for parents to just feel less alone. Tell me all about what you're doing with that. Yeah. You know, I I have, as I said, I started a, a, a Facebook group for Charlotte back in 2013. And I was always frustrated with the lack of in-person meetups. There are wonderful organizations who do great things, but they stink at in-person meetups. They don't do enough of them. And we need that. You know, even before COVID, now after COVID, we just need to get together. So what I had done for many years was I would just call it, hey, it's technology night. You would have loved this, Justin. And I would call, you know, the technology companies because I knew them all. Um, they, you know, they were staff at my kids' camp. And I'd be like, hey, you know, Galen over at, 
back then, Animus. You know, and hey, Justin at Tandem, you guys should come together. Let's have dinner, and we'll all learn about the technology. And it was like a little mini conference, and I would just do it for free and, and like rent a hotel room or something, and everybody would come out. And it was great. So I, I really missed doing that, and I kept hearing all these, you know, requests for meetups. And I actually do a monthly meetup in the Charlotte area. We do dinner one month, we do lunch one month. Um, and anybody who can come, sometimes we get two people, sometimes we get 30 people, but I do it every month because I want it to be a resource. If it's me with my laptop, no problem. I always have a book I can read or work I can do. So I started Mom's Night Out in January in Charlotte thinking it would be a one-time event. It was supposed to be a book launch. But I started thinking like, ooh, I want to give these moms more value. Like most of them had already bought the book. I want to give these local moms more value. So let's do a technology night. But, you know, let's also do cocktails and crafts because that's really fun too. And let's have a speaker. And by the time I was done, I, the book had gone out of the conference and it was a real conference. So I sold it. And we had 80 women come to the first Moms Night Out in Charlotte. And then I heard from all these people around the country, like, come to my city. So we're, we're making this a real event. So I'm in uh, Dallas, Texas in October. And I'm hesitating because it's really Frisco, which is a suburb of Dallas, Providence, Rhode Island, late October, back in Charlotte in February. And we're going to add four more cities for 2024 and hopefully go from there. So I, like I said, I've heard from people all around the country who want me to come to their city. We're trying to focus on places that might not have large um, JDRF conferences, Friends for Life. There are these, if you've never heard, Friends for Life is a great group. They do regional conferences twice a year and a big one in Florida. So we're staying away from where they are because they're already serving this community. I want to go to places that don't have it. But it's a party. It's great. You learn about all the technology. You have a cocktail or a mocktail. You, we do lots of social icebreakers, which I know some people are like, oh, no, I don't want to do that. They're not goofy. They're super easy. I know that. And a lot of people come by themselves. They don't know anybody. And everybody leaves with a friend. So I'm so happy. Thank you for asking. It's, it's just of a course. dream to be able to do this. It's wonderful. Yeah, you're making me want to want to go to one of these events, even though I'm not a parent. I'm like, I want to meet all the parents. That's fantastic. I'm also going to have links to those in the show notes as well. I thank want people to, to see those, and hopefully you're coming to some listeners' cities. Stacy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This was so insightful, I'm sure, to my listeners, but also to me. Such a great peek into what a lot of parents are going through and how much support there is that you're also helping create. I want to add one more thing, if you don't mind. When I do yeah. par presentations Please. to parents, okay, thank you. When I do presentations to parents and I talk about all this stuff and I don't share numbers and they're like, well, I, you know, I've mentioned like you know, I'm never going above 120. You know, they're always worried like, well, if my kid is high, like you said, your kid was high for four hours on a Friday night. How do I know that's not doing damage? There's two studies that everybody with diabetes and every caregiver with diabetes should know about. And they are the DCCT trial, Diabetes Control and Complications trial. This was the first study, and it only ended in the early 1990s, that showed that there was a chance that you could lower complications with diabetes. Before this study, they thought, sorry, you have diabetes, can't do anything for you. Even if we lower your A1C, probably won't help. You'll probably still die. You'll probably still go blind. It was horrible. The DCCT study showed that if you could bring your A1C down into what they called tighter control at the time, which was like 8.0, you could lower the rate of complication. It was amazing and breakthrough. There's a follow-up on that that's still going on that's called the EDICT study, E-D-I-C. This is the one that I really like to point out to parents because it showed that, the, and it, as I said, it continues, but there was a 2009 
report from this study, following people who had been diagnosed 30 years prior, so you want to talk no CGM, probably no pump, probably older insulin, that with education, the care of an endocrinologist, and what I like to call community, it was a little bit different in the study, but it's having people around you that support you, that these folks had almost zero complication. The rate from the DCC trial, you can look at these graphs, went from here to here, and their A1Cs were between 7.5 and 8.0, which is not what the parents that are listening to your show, Justin, are striving for, right? So if you can look at these studies with the hope that I do and say, holy cow, look how great these folks are doing. With everything we have, with the education and the technology and the support that we have today, our kids can be incredibly healthy and they don't have to have a 4.9 A1C. So if you've never heard of these, DCCT and EDICT, they are wonderful studies that will give you hope backed up by science. And I always just like to leave with that because to me, they just changed the way I looked at diabetes. Yeah, thank you for adding that. I'm going to have to look at that myself. This was yeah. this has been a fantastic interview. I'm very excited <laughs> for people. Also, so people know I'm going to be on Stacy's show as well. Uh, so I'm, I'm so glad that we did this together. And I look forward to listening to your podcast some more. <laughs> <laughs> Justin, I love what you're doing. I really appreciate it. Having somebody with your curiosity, with your first person knowledge and learning is so valuable. So thank you for what you're doing. And you make it fun. It's awesome. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I've thrown links to Stacy's podcast and that episode I was featured on and her mom's night out event. Those are all in the show notes, so feel free to check those out. Next week is the beginning of a two-parter where I interviewed the creator of Sugar Pixel, a display that projects CGM readings and the developer of an app uh, for a device called Tidbit, which is another LED display. I'm very excited for you to hear those. That starts next week and it's a two-week thing. New episodes release every Monday on YouTube and on all major podcast platforms, so be sure to give it a follow. And I've got videos coming on YouTube every Friday, so if you'd like to follow me there or on social media, I've got links in the show notes. Until next week, I'm Justin, and I'll talk to you later.